So last week we started a series talking about uh, God matters, and today we're uh, continuing with that. Uh, last week was Jesus matters, and today is the gospel matters. What is the gospel? Um, this word, um, I think we have a couple of slides if we can put those up. So gospel, there's a Greek fancy word, uh, euangelion, and that is really a very simple word in Greek. It just means good, good news. And uh, it's where we get the scary English word evangelism, um, which some of us are afraid of. Um, but again, that's actually a pretty simple uh, meaning. It really just means tell good news, um, telling the good news. And uh, if you go to the next slide, you'll see there's a, well, there's a common word that's in all in these, and that's the word angel. And uh, we often think of these angelic beings and all that kind of thing, but angel is a very simple word in Greek as well. It simply means messenger. Um, so it's kind of somebody who brings good news. Um, and you think of the Christmas story and other stories. The Christmas story is that one that fits in our head a lot better when we think of angels. And what do the angels do in the Christmas story but show up and bring, and we've got Christmas songs about it, they call it glad tidings, right? Um, which is just good news. That's exactly the same Greek word. So that's basically what the word gospel means. It's just good news, very simple. But what is the good news? What is the gospel? And I want you to think for a minute what it is for you. Um, because you might have a different answer for yourself than you would if you were thinking about everyone or uh, for all of history or something like that. But what is the good news for you? Or another way of thinking about it is, what is your experience of the gospel? And so if you can just take a minute and try to think about what that is. If you have to tell someone what the good news is for you or what the gospel is for you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would you tell the person? I'm not going to ask you to actually do that right now. So, But try to think about what, what would you say. There's something embedded in our text this morning that gives us a little bit about what the gospel is, and that's in verse 8. We get uh, this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but the gift of God. And I think a lot of the times our emphasis, and by ours I mean the church, uh, our emphasis has been to go on the saved through faith part. As in, if you believe in Jesus, then you're saved. That's kind of been our emphasis. We've said, in a lot of respects, we've said that is the gospel. If you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. See, what we do is we make the gospel into a conditional religious statement. If you believe in Jesus, then you are saved. And I have news for you, good news, that's actually not the gospel. It's maybe part of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Listen to what that kind of thing sounds like uh, in a totally different context, okay? Imagine you're watching TV, and the, the TV program is interrupted, and a news anchor comes on the screen, and across the bottom there's a banner that says, Breaking News. And then the anchor says, We interrupt your program to bring you this important announcement. If you call the number on the screen, we will give you a free cruise. That isn't breaking news, by the way. Right, that's a conditional statement of, if you do this, you'll get a reward. And I think if I saw that, my response would be, I don't believe it. 
I'm not going to call, and please get me back to my TV program. Right? Now, news would be actually somebody else reporting. Earlier today, a TV station actually gave away free cruises to anyone who called. That would be news, right? Because, like, that wouldn't happen, right? It's amazing. And I'd listen to that and I'd think, wow, I missed out. <laughs> really good news would be that same reporter then adding on to the end of the report. And here's the number to phone because the offer is always on. Like, that would be really good news, right? So some of this is in the telling, what good news is and what it isn't. My point is, is that the conditional statement that we sometimes have, what it does is it turns the good news into a sales pitch rather than actual news. If you can just believe what I'm telling you, you'll get the reward. But the good news is actually about an event, an event that's already happened. See, we've emphasized the saved through faith part. If you get the faith part right, you'll be saved. And we forget sometimes to emphasize the by grace you have been saved part. That means that God has already chosen and has already done it. God has saved us even though it is unmerited for us. Even though we don't deserve it. It's not an if-then statement in verse 8. It's, for by grace you have been saved. Done. So let's add the level of complication. I asked you to think about what the good news is for you. And I bet if we went around and actually told one another, we would get all kinds of different answers. And we'd probably get personal stories about how God has been present or active in our lives. And that would be good and uplifting and really helpful. Um, and none of those stories would actually be an incorrect answer. They, they would all be right. None of those stories would be wrong. They would all be correct answers to the question, what is the gospel for you? But the gospel is good news referring to an event, an event that happened in the past, in history, an event that has to do with salvation by grace. Both of these things kind of seem to be true of the gospel. And uh, a couple of years ago, I went to a workshop with, uh, uh, it was led by John Bowen. And uh, John Bowen is uh, at Wycliffe College, an Anglican college in Toronto. And he kind of talked about how there's this big gospel, and that big gospel refers to the big event. But there's also this kind of mini gospel. And that's kind of a personalized gospel. And it arises out of the effect that the big event has had on us. And I'll give you an example uh, using a different kind of news, not the cruise ship anymore. So here's the example. One person says, oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to be able to have sugar in my coffee and we're going to be able to eat bananas. <laughs> Another person says, I'm going to get to finally raise a family. I'm going to get to start a family. Another person says, I can go to university. That just wasn't possible before. And another person says, I'm going to get married. Each of these would be an accurate and correct response to the announcement that World War II <coughs> is over. 
right? Just take the, say, the use of sugar, okay? And not having to live with food rationing anymore, okay? See, what happens is, is that you get the announcement of the war and the food rations might still be going, right? But you know they're going to end. Everything's going to go back to the way it was. And, every, and, and the context of your life starts to change. So every time you put sugar in your tea or your coffee after the food rationing is over, you would remember what it was like to have food rationed. And you would immediately be thankful for two things. You would be thankful for all the food that you now have, and you would be thankful for the end of the war. See, you've got the small news, kind of the mini news, which is, I've got all the food I want. I mean, that's pretty big, but it's kind of the mini news. The, the big news is the end of the war. That's the, the, the news that has far-reaching effects. And that's what the gospel is like. It's big news with far-reaching effects. And those effects are also experienced to us as the gospel, as the good news. The difficulty sometimes is that the farther away you are from the event, the less obvious the connections can be. So the generation after food rationing simply takes for granted that they could just go to the grocery store and get whatever they want. So they forget about the thankfulness. That generation is also no longer reminded of the war and its end when they add sugar to their tea or coffee. I don't think about that. It's kind of the same with the gospel, or it can be. The first believers, they saw an immediate connection between the events that the gospel pointed to and the impact on their lives, right there. And we may have that kind of experience. We may have the same or similar impact, but, but sometimes I think we can just take for granted its source, or we simply just aren't reminded of the gospel anymore because we forget easily. Like, we actually live in a fairly forgiving culture as an example, believe it or not. I mean, that's actually one of the values of our culture. We don't always practice it well, but if you ask the average Canadian, they would say, yeah, we should, you know, we should generally forgive people, at least for the little things. That's kind of embedded in our culture. That wasn't in the culture of Jesus' time. I mean, that was radical for the first believers to suddenly go, we're going to forgive each other because God has forgiven us in Christ. Uh, the, the Romans weren't practicing that. There's absolutely no way. They had a radical culture of vengeance around them. And suddenly Christians are starting to actually practice a culture of forgiveness. We kind of take that for granted. We don't always do it right, but when we see it happening, even when we see it happening outside the church, we should be thankful and we should immediately think of, of the gospel. We forget easily. We know the gospel means good news, though, but what is the news? Like, what is the content of it? And what event does it tell about? Well, the content of this big gospel is really the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. It might be even more than that. But if you want to focus on something and all of that, it would be the crucifixion or the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts, in the book of Acts, the shorthand for the gospel is just this. Christ is risen. And in most of Paul's writing, the shorthand is usually this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus came to die on the cross and be risen to new life. But there's a whole context we need to know. 
The gospel has a whole story that goes with it. It's not just principles and beliefs and statements. It's not just that there was someone named Jesus who died and then rose from the dead. Who Jesus is matters, and the buildup over the centuries prior to Jesus also matters. See, the, the, the World War II analogy works, because even if we might know someone who's lived through the war, or we lived through it ourselves, um, but even if we don't know someone, we kind of have a sense for what, what it was, like, um, or we've seen movies, or that it's around us. It's a lot harder with the backstory for Jesus. It's not immediately evident to us. But we've got to get at that backstory. It takes going back into the scriptures and trying to understand what was happening. So I'll try to give it to you in short, a little bit today. God had a covenant with Israel, a chosen people. And God promised to be their God and to guide and protect and provide for them. And the people promised to love and worship and serve God alone. And God kept the covenant. He did things like freeing the people from slavery in Egypt. He brought them into a promised land. And the people kind of went back, on, back and forth in keeping up their side of the covenant. They actually broke it a lot. They worshipped other gods. They made idols. They even didn't really act with a lot of justice or mercy the way God wanted them to. They didn't follow God in short. And God's response to the breaking of the covenant was essentially mercy. God gave them other leaders. He gave judges and then kings. And the intention of those were to rule and try to provide guidance for the people. So they had a law, but they also got kind of interpreters of it. And uh, there were priests. Um, the priests would offer sacrifices for sin. And there were prophets. And the prophets were there to communicate God's word to the people and, and what God was wanting them to do. And people were continually asked to turn back to God, and over and over the people, they might do well for a little bit, but then they kind of fall away, they, they, they turn away. Eventually, what ended up happening was God uh, handed them over to foreign enemies. Uh, the Babylonians came in and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem that they built. They took many people into exile. Um, but God, after doing that, also sent prophets again to those people and announced a message of hope a promise of return into their homeland and reconciliation. Um, so people like Jeremiah, Jeremiah proclaimed the hope of a new covenant and talked about the law that was going to be written on people's hearts. Isaiah uh, has these amazing uh, songs about the servant of the Lord who would free the captives and suffer for their sins. Ezekiel uh, had prophecies that Israel would be resettled on its own soil, but that God's spirit would dwell in the people's hearts eventually, and they would know that God is their God in their hearts. And eventually God did bring the people back to their land and establish them there. And the people waited for these bigger promises, these heart promises to come to pass. And they were basically waiting for a savior. And God sent Jesus, or God came in Jesus because Jesus is God. But Jesus didn't really save people the way people thought a savior should save people. Um, he didn't set up a new nation or reestablish them. He didn't lead people to political uh, or even social freedom. Jesus, though, did something far deeper and far bigger. In dying and rising from the dead, Jesus saved people from sin. And this is really important. Now, we tend to not really like sin. 
or talking about, well, it's probably good enough to not like sin, but we don't like talking about it as well. We don't really want to come to church to be told that we're sinners. We don't want to feel guilty. We want to feel okay about ourselves. And we hope that at least by the end of church, we will feel a little bit better than when we first got here. And we want to believe that while we aren't as good as people like, say, Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr. or Nelson Mandela or whatever, but we're not as good as them, but we're better than most people. Like, we like to believe that, right? We want to believe that also that everyone is generally good. And we kind of want to believe that there is no sin. But what is it, really? It's disobedience or rebellion, or in Hebrew, it's more accurately missing the mark, as though you're trying, but because you're human, you miss it. Kind of like that definition. It's also about action. You try to do good, but end up not quite doing it or doing bad. It can also be, and I think in Ephesians especially, it can be talking actually really about two ways of life or two paths. That God has laid out a path of goodness and righteousness, and when we walk that path, we experience life. But there is the sin path, and when we walk that path, we are like the walking dead. We like to think sometimes that sin isn't real, or we'll say that there are really no moral absolutes, that we can't judge others because right and wrong is a matter of perspective. But the problem with that is that we are surrounded by things that really don't seem right at all. We have friends and family who are suffering from cancer or other diseases, and that doesn't seem right. We have wars and violence going on in our world, and that does not seem right. Every six weeks, over a million people die because of hunger and because of other, uh, because of preventable diseases. But actually, most of us aren't struggling with these kinds of things at all, because they seem really remote to us, right? But there are those of us in this room who are struggling with things like addictions. Or we're struggling with loneliness, or we are struggling with guilt, or we're struggling with mental illness of some kind. Or we're struggling because of estrangement from family, or relationship issues, or marriages that are falling apart, or stress from work, or stress from school. Something doesn't seem right. Somehow all of this is going on in our world, and in our lives, and yet we have trouble admitting that there is evil, and that there is sin. Yet it's all around us. We also have trouble admitting that any of it has any effect on us. We're really good at ignoring, at self-medicating. We're good at finding distractions. We're really good at shopping, for instance. And some of our addictions are just ways of coping with something that is actually much more difficult in life, whatever that is. Facing the world as it is is really hard. We don't like to do it. And facing ourselves as we are is, I think, even harder. There's a woman I met when I first became a minister, very faithful. She'd gone to church her whole life. She was always joyful and positive, and she volunteered in the church. She was in her 90s at the time that I met her. 
And uh, she knew her Bible, and she shared Christ's love with whoever she met. And she told me one time that as she got older and learned more about God and the world, she kept becoming more and more aware that she was a sinner in desperate need of God. <coughs> this fascinated me because everyone else saw her as the perfect Christian and as a fantastic, wonderful person. So was she deluded about herself? Or maybe she had a confidence issue. Maybe she had low self-esteem, or maybe she was depressed. No, actually, she was absolutely fearless. I got to sit with her. The only time she'd spent more than a few days in hospital was a couple of weeks before her death. And she was absolutely unafraid. She also was not afraid to look at herself and see that she too struggled. She was only satisfied to be who God had created her to be. And she was keenly aware that there were still things in her life that were getting in the way of being who God had created her to be. Even in her nights. And what was amazing about her was that this was not a cause of pain or sadness for her. She seemed to relish in seeing herself as always growing, always learning, always having opportunity after opportunity to go to God in joy and thanksgiving. Now, I think there's a bunch of us who might hear this story and think, wow, I hope by the time I'm 90, I've got life figured out and I'm not like that woman. <laughs> I'd like to look back on my life and be really proud of my life. And our, our last phrase in our passage from Ephesians talks about how uh, this is all about God's grace. And we need to remember that so that no one should boast. She wasn't proud. She was very thankful for her life. For what God had done for her and through her. She had such confidence. If only we could all be so honest and recognize that we need God's grace. If only we could be so keenly aware that there are things in this world that, that we just, we let them have power over us. They pose away from our true identities as new creations in Christ. In Ephesians, sin is not just about bad things we do. It's about giving in. Verse 2 talks about following the course of the world or following the power of the ruler of the air, the spirit that's now at work among those who are disobedient talks about these powers and this idea of the, the ruler of the air is whatever the most powerful evil force is in the world. That thing, that being that somehow directs this off-kilter world. Ephesians uh, seems to claim that when you think about those really bad people, you know, because we, we think in these terms of really bad people, right? I'm not saying we should, but that's how we think. Like people who go on killing sprees or the ones who just have no respect for life at all. The same thing that's making them to be how they are is the same thing that somehow we get caught up into. We live in the same world. 
When someone dies in a waiting room, some are quick to, to blame the healthcare system, and some ask why no one, uh, no one is there, or no, no one seemed to notice. You remember a few years ago, this happened right to a homeless man in, in uh, health, health Science Center, and there's been big investigations about it, right? I'm not sure I would have done anything if I was a patient sitting in the waiting room. It's the same world. It's the same world that, that taught us about proper behavior. And actually our world that somehow has some of the gospel's values embedded in it also has this other side to it that is just so anti-gospel. That it pays lip service to putting others first, but really... It's about putting yourself before everybody else. We live in a world that's taught us about there's bad people and there's good people and there's people who have status and there's people who don't. And the poor people and a poor person dying in a waiting room, for instance, doesn't matter as much as if someone who had some more money or had their own house, if it had happened. See, our, our, our world has this, and it's this culture, this, and, and it's like it's a power that's over us that we either go along with or we just ignore or we can say no to it and stand in Christ. Sin is very real. Evil is real. There are these huge forces at work in our world that influence us greatly, that have control over our everyday life. Some think these forces are absolutely and completely spiritual or demonic in some way, and others think the, these powers over us are human-made. I think it's both. And I won't deny that there are purely spiritual forces at work in our world, but I also can't deny that, that our spirits and our lives are vastly influenced by our own creations as human beings, by what we do to one another, by the way we've even set up our societies, we often think that these forces are way beyond our control and we just have to, uh, you know, we just have to go along with it. There's nothing we can do. Or we don't even see these forces at work and we think, well, that's just the way the world is. <clears throat> and we've got big things. We've got the media or the economy or things like climate change. Well, can we do anything about those things? We've got those big ones and then we've got personal ones like addiction or abuse. And particularly when you think about uh, abuse or the abuse of children in some way uh, who, who might have been hit in their home by their parents, there are children that grow up and they assume that the way the world is is the parents of their kids. And, and when we take that as an analogy for our lives, when we start to make assumptions, well, that's just the way the world is. That's the same thing. It's the same thing. We need to recognize that our world is in fact full of sin. And that we are both victims of it and perpetrators of it. And so if we can see that reality, we will start to see that we have this desperate need for forgiveness and to forgive each other. We have a desperate need to confess. This is why we do this every Sunday, really, is have a prayer of confession. And in this need, God does something. He saves us. We have this need to be saved. 
and God does it. That's what the second half of the reading from Ephesians is actually about. The first part is, we were this way. We were caught up in this way of life, giving into the world, not worrying about sin, uh, just turning a blind eye to it, following the way of the world, not caring, not thinking about it. Ignorant bliss, but also we were the walking dead. We were in denial about this fallen world and this hurting world, in denial that any part of it affects me in any way. And we, we were surely not looking within ourselves at the hurt and the pain and even the sin that I carry around with me. We were not doing that. That's the first part of the reading of Ephesians. The second part is talking about what God does about it. Talking about this salvation that is given in Jesus Christ. And salvation is actually much more than forgiveness, but sometimes we need forgiveness really more than anything. Sometimes we know we need it. We know we've done something terribly wrong and we feel terrible about it. And we don't think we are worthy of love from God or from anyone. And this is why Jesus went to the cross. He was worthy of love from God and love from everyone. And he laid down his life for us who really in the end are not worthy. Jesus gave himself up for us, people who are broken, people who sin, people who live in denial, people who are addicted, people who are abused, and people who abuse. He lived and died and was raised for us, victims and perpetrators, that we could live with him and in him, that we could live, we could stop being the walking dead, and we could live in him. He did this not because we earned it, or because we did anything. He did it from grace, because he chose to. Not because we wanted him to, not because we believed so much and got him to do it, not because we claimed it for ourselves and realized our self-esteem and, and pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, none of that. It's absolutely nothing to do with what we have done. It's because God chose to do it. God is gracious, God loves us. He saves us in Christ. This is the gospel. God made news when he chose to do this for us in Christ. It's big news. This is the gospel. It's good news. And it matters. Amen.